At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, everyone. This is Waheed from drsatl.com, and we are responsible for the amazing sound you hear week after week. Vince, unfortunately, is sick today, but I wanted to jump in and intro the last episode of Wild Black Future Month. Today, of course, you will have your temporary hosts, Peyton and Xavier, who will be interviewing the dynamic CEO of Black Vibe Tribe, 17-year-old Trinity Simone. Trinity has powerful words on what it is to be Black today, and I'm sure you will be better for listening. And with that, I'm out of here. Enjoy the episode. Peace. I do understand that I'm 17 years old. Yeah. I'm constantly growing. I'm constantly evolving. And I will ne- I never had the intention of carrying the weight of the masses on my shoulders. Right. That was never my intention. However, I do believe I'm a vessel of many who will continue to utilize my platform and utilize the influence I have to positively impact as many as I can. And through leadership, um, I'll I'll just continue to serve because I feel like that's what all phenomenal leaders do. They serve, 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 they serve. Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Welcome to the second and final episode of the Black Future Month series. This February, we will be celebrating Black Future Month, a change to the usual commemoration and acknowledgement of the sacrifices and accomplishments of our ancestors. Black History Month. Those moments of gratitude and realization will always be important, but there's also a responsibility to speak about what, or rather who, is coming next. Now, I know my voice sounds different from your usual hosts, and that is because, as I mentioned in last week's episode, Art and Vince have given me, Peyton Gunner, and my classmate of the Harvard Diversity Project, Xavier Schenkel. Hey, everybody. (laughs) The incomparable opportunity of hosting two episodes and speaking in another episode to support the idea of Black Future Month. Who better talk about Black youth than two 17-year-old seniors? Don't worry, though, they'll be back very soon. But for the moment being, these episodes are written and produced by Black Youth Talk About Black Youth. So last week with our youth guests, we talked about breaking through the glass ceiling, a metaphorical barrier set by people outside of our own community that we feel an obligation to deconstruct. Today, we'll be talking about breaking the mold, a stereotype set by people within our own community and the responsibility we may or may not have to change or destroy that in order to progress as a community. So Peyton, when we talk about breaking the mold, we mean literally doing things that aren't necessarily associated with being Black. And the perfect example of this is the one and only Miss Trinity Simone. So One look at Trinity's social media page or one look at at her work will leave you in awe. She's a 17-year-old Atlanta native who started her own business, an apparel company called the Black Vibe Tribe, created to uplift and motivate our youth. She she also was very active in the social media realm, starting the Youth Will Be All Right. This was essentially created to bring awareness to institutionalized and incarcerated youth. Um, You know, 
in juvenile detention centers. And so Trinity's impact in the city of Atlanta uh, is truly extremely profound. And Trinity is an amazing individual. And, and to think that she's only 17 is so inspiring. And, and as she has, and we know she has so many more trails to blaze. And we like to first off welcome Trinity um, as our guest today. Welcome. Thank Woo-hoo. you. Hi, everyone. <laughs> okay, so before we start the actual yes. interview, mm-hmm. we're going to do like these loosen up questions. Okay? Awesome. Let's they're go. called wild black questions. And they're going to be kind of fun. And then at the end, we're going to ask you the question all the guests get asked, which is, which, what is your favorite part of life while black? Okay. okay? Right. So we're thinking about that. Okay. Xavier? Go all ahead. right. So n- question number one. So one thing I didn't mention a few seconds ago is that Trinity is actually a musician. Yes. So Trinity, briefly, okay. Tell us, what are your three most influential or greatest rappers, dead or alive, and Ooh, why? That's hard. <laughs> that is difficult. Um, I'll have to say Lauryn Hill, for mm. sure. Number oh, absolutely. One. Love Lauryn Hill. The, mes- the miseducation of Lauryn Hill is Isn't one of she my... the one that shows up late to every concert? Yes, that has <laughs> been the uh, <laughs> thing going around. But I feel like the most education of Lauren Hill was just so iconic and is untouchable. Mm. So she is definitely number one. Um, Tupac, because I feel like he was so influential, is not only a rapper, but an activist and mm. someone who was just aware of the times he was in and spoke on it and just was himself authentic, very real. So he's someone who makes it up there. And third... Oof, that's so hard. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to leave someone out that's like so important. But I will say, I'll, I'll bring it to now and mm. I'll say J. Cole. I really love mm. J. Cole as a rapper, as an artist. I feel like he has the storyteller ability where he can take you through, you know, his life and what he experiences it, but also, you know, has things that we can relate to in his music. Interesting. interesting. Okay. Question number two. Okay. So you're starting a revolutionary movement, right? You're starting a West revolutionary movement for the black community, you need a partner in change. You have two options, Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. Who are you choosing? Now how can you do a question like that? Hey, decisions, decisions. <laughs> in today's age. Yeah. In today's age. Hmm. First of all, they're both, they're both amazing figures. Okay. I mean, picking one, you can't. You just, you know, you can't. But mm-hmm. if I had to pick a partner, I think it would be Malcolm X. I feel like how he just demanded your attention with his words, his intellect, his intelligence, um, his ability to really move the masses and his influence and how he did it. Um, it's always someone I was very inspired by. Even his story that, you know, he depicted and, you know, you read in the autobiography of Malcolm X, just how he was able to change his life and to really maneuver differently once he was, um, you know, faced with all the facts and his history and everything like that. I just felt that was so powerful alone, so. You know, the com- the common thing is like, Martin Luther King was peace versus mm-hmm. violence and then Malcolm X was violence versus violence. Do you see Malcolm X like that or do you see it as I like don't. I feel revolution? like I feel like both of them were revolutionary and mm-hmm. I just feel like their approaches were different. I hate mm-hmm. to say one was violent and one was nonviolent. Right. I believe That's that ridiculous. in the times they found themselves in, Malcolm just said it how it was. And then you know, in in those times people didn't want to face the cold hard facts mm-hmm. or the truth as that as being that evident. Whereas Martin had a more um, he, his approach was more easier to digest, I think, is, is, is how I would yeah. say it. Where Malcolm, he was just going to say it how it is. Okay, final question. Okay. What is your favorite part of life while Black? I think the culture and the history. I feel like being Black has allowed me to know that we reign supreme. We have greatness that lies in our DNA. And just knowing what we come from and the potential and our excellence and all that we have, you know, ahead of us. I feel like that's just unmatched, untouchable. Okay. Mm. 
Great job. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so now we have a dope quote. Dope quotes kind of define the entire episode, kind of what we'll be talking about, kind of use as a structure for the episode, okay? okay? So, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Audrey Lord. This ties perfectly into today's guest, who believes wholeheartedly in creating world change for yourself and building beautiful foundations for flourishing communities where there's sometimes an expectation for the soil to be infertile, hard, and rocky. We'll talk heavily with Trinity Simone about changing that narrative about Black youth for and beyond Black Future Month. How are you doing today, Trinity? I'm doing good. How are you all doing? Pretty Fantastic. good. That's the first time we got it asked yeah, back. Yeah, asked us back. <laughs> um, How we we're doing? pretty tired, but we're doing good. Excited for you to be here today. Okay. Xavier. So, Trinity, we just want to, like, you know, we don't want to dive too far into the content. We want to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Trinity Simone? Of course. Who is Trinity Simone? I'm a 17-year-old entrepreneur. I launched Black Vibe Tribe when I was just 14 years old. So, I find myself in three years Which of is business. crazy. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, I'm the founder of The Youth Will Be All Right, which is an organization I started when I was 16. And I strive to amplify the voices of incarcerated youth um, through the donation of composition notebooks. Trinity Simone, she's a creative. She is an idea person, an avid reader and writer. I love words. Um, and at the core of me, I would say, is a family person. I come from a very loving and supporting and nourishing family who has never neglected to support all my dreams and aspirations. And from a very young age, I was taught to love and embrace myself, stand in my truth, and be unapologetically me. And those are values that I hold very close to me. So that's me in a nutshell. We love to hear it. We love to hear a person who's driven and dedicated to, to reaching success at, at such a young age. It's it's amazing to see, but I just want to ask, what's your why? So what makes you get up every day? My why? My why would be the love I have for myself and my people. Mm. I emphatically believe that we have greatness running through our veins. Even from a very young age, I was infatuated with like the revolutionary greats that came before me. So the Malcolm X, the Muhammad Ali, Marcus yeah. Garvey, Asada Shakur, Septima Clark, Nina Simone, these individuals who were literally able to utilize their voice and their power and their platforms to spark the masses. And just seeing that, I've always like in awe. Yeah, I would literally listen and watch their speeches as much as someone would listen to their favorite song. Um, right. And that alone just really inspired me to want to leave my legacy as they did. And furthermore, to inspire someone else to do the same or to, to create something just as phenomenal. I'll say Tupac uh, said a quote that was very inspiring to me. He said, I may not be the one to change the world. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But I can assure you that I will spark the mind of the person who will change the mm -hmm. world. And that's mm -hmm. something I hold very close to me because I want to do the same. So that's what drives me. That's my why. How do you find the confidence to believe that you could, not that you didn't, or not that you can't, mm -hmm. but match the greatness that our ancestors did accomplish and mm -hmm. what they made, um, maybe not look easy, but definitely that's something that they did and will, that continue to do. Of course. How did you find that within yourself? 
I would like to credit a lot of that to my parents, mm -hmm. um, what they instilled in me from a very young age. They taught me that, they taught me of what I come from and the greatness and excellence we derive from. So why would I ever think that I'm not capable of doing something as amazing? You know, that there, that the power of the revolutionary greats and the activists and all of them that came before me, I, I share the same lineage with them. What would you say to students that don't have that support, that foundation with them? And how do they find the confidence without guidance? Um, that's a good question yeah. because I, you know, I, I was privileged enough yeah. to have mm -hmm. that. But I would say it's simply knowing that if I could talk to them, I would say, this is what you come from. You do come from something as great, as royal, as what you, as what you do come from. And your voice is meant to be heard. It holds so much power in it. So just use it. That's what we're going to be talking about today, Black youth and what you feel their role is in current society with mm -hmm. technology and everything. It's kind of like everyone's trying to make their mark on the world, right? You feel like you have this great responsibility, which I believe that we do. Mm -hmm. But I think I wanted to get your perspective on what responsibility you think Black youth have to change and build up the Black community and um, the world. Or is, is that even their responsibility? So first and foremost, I think every individual in this world has the responsibility to leave this world a little better than they found it. But um, specifically for Black youth, I do feel that we have a certain responsibility to carry the baton and continue the marathon of our ancestors. Our ancestors fought and labored and sacrificed so much to give us the fortunes they were never, you know, they were never given. So I believe that we must continue the legacy and we must carry it on because, um, we owe it to them, you know? We really do. Do you believe that the baton has been passed to you? I believe it's been passed to not only me, but my peers as well, our mm. whole generation. Already? Already in the sense of... Do you feel that our parents our and family. maybe even our grandparents, you know, some people in our community who aren't old, right? Mm -hmm. But they're definitely not the youth of the community that they maybe still hold the baton and that they sometimes unwilling or maybe have not yet passed that baton? I think we all have a part to play in it. So I believe that whether it's willingly, unwilling, unwillingly or unwillingly, we still have our roles. If you know, I feel like everyone needs to, I feel like we should all be doing our part, whether it's utilizing our voices, whether it's utilizing our platforms, whether it's just speaking out against injustices, whatever it may be, I feel like we're all included in this. So what are some things that, we talk about passing the baton, what, mm -hmm. what are some things that, that our ancestors or even the, the older people alive now, what are some things that you think they could be doing to be supporting people like you, the black youth community? I think it's just about when you see somebody who is doing great things for the community, just to simply support them, support. show them support, uplift them, love them, you know, just, just guide them almost, or, you know, you know, stand with them, stand behind them. Here's saying something that I really hear a lot about types of activism, right? Like okay. you hear like make a change or, start a movement or be a leader, right? But that's not something everybody can do, mm -hmm. right? Before the baton is passed, mm -hmm. what is the role of Black youth in our current society? I believe we do have a responsibility, even if it's not, if we don't have all the resources. Right. I think we mm -hmm. get so caught up in, we need the money, we Absolutely, need these yeah. amount of followers, we need these certain, you know, things, but we really don't. It's the simple acts, I believe, even if it's just supporting certain causes. We live in an era of social media, of of blogs, of podcasts, mm -hmm. of, you know, um, online magazines we could be a part of, right? Submit our articles. We live in a generation where we have so many outlets that we can be a part of and that we can use our voices 
in the most efficient ways mm-hmm. possible. So I feel like there is no shortage or no or a drought of how we can include ourselves in this movement. So you see that you're sticking to this notion of passing the baton and we have this responsibility to stay committed and continue to support ourselves. What are some things black you shouldn't be doing? What, what's, what's, what could be holding us back from ourselves, from our own success? I will say that when we, because you did speak on everyone wants to be an activist, everyone wants right. to be a leader, mm-hmm. all of this. I will say that one thing is that we can't always, we can't get caught up in the notions of trends, of following the pack, of yeah. following, you know, we can't do that. We have to be so unapologetically ourselves, know who we are, find our truth and stick to that. We can't just follow every single trend, follow every single um, thing everyone else is doing just to do that. We have to first become self-aware, I would say. You mentioned how you target individuals from the African diaspora, Mm -hmm. right? That's millions of people, Mm -hmm. right? How does one go about carrying the weight of that entire community or and leading and helping that many people? But when you put it like that, I sound like <laughs> super woman. But um, I do understand that I'm 17 years old. Yeah. I'm constantly growing. I'm constantly evolving. And I'll ne- I never had the intention of carrying the weight of the masses on my shoulders. Right. Okay. That was never my intention. Mm-hmm. However, I do believe I'm a vessel of many who will continue to utilize my platform and utilize the influence I have to positively impact as many as I can. And through leadership, um, I'll I'll just continue to serve because I feel like that's what all phenomenal leaders do. They serve. So so what are are some characteristics of people who can take that, that I don't don't, don't even want to call it a burden, but can take that task upon their shoulders? How do you describe a good leader? Well, I would say that a good leader doesn't carry the masses Mm. on their shoulders. I would say that even how I stated, I'm a vessel, I'm one vessel of many. I believe that leaders work alongside Alone. other leaders. They build together, they connect to overall have a greater impact on the masses. So I feel like a leader knows their mission and knows their objective, but understands that they can't do it alone, that they are they are fighting with and alongside so many other great leaders, activists, revolutionaries, whoever you want to call them, but whatever you want to call them. But I feel like that's one great characteristic, knowing that you have to work together mm-hmm. to achieve the ultimate goal. You don't feel a re- unique responsibility to help yeah. African-Americans in particular. Like you speak about your ancestors, mm-hmm. right? And and the hard work and dedication and blood and sweat and tears they had to put into to even, you know, for you to even sit in this chair right now, mm-hmm. you know? how How can you... I don't want to say that you shouldn't support everyone from the African diaspora, but specifically focus on African-Americans. I believe that we first must know where we come from to know how we advance in the future. So I believe that focusing solely on African-Americans, we have to look at the people from the African diaspora and know what they poured into, like what Mm -hmm. they poured into this, what they've done, what they have really sacrificed. So we know how to advance from that. So, um, I be, of course, as an African-American myself, I will focus on the African-American community and advancing us, um, you know, solely advancing us. But when I speak of Black Five Tribe, I think of that as a global initiative where all of us, it's, it's for right. all of mm-hmm. us. Yeah. It has to be, I think. Mm-hmm. Of course. You built, you built your company, Black Five Tribe, mm-hmm. from almost nothing. How, how do you... How did you do that as a black person in today's society? Start from nothing and get to where you are today. 
It's happening every day. Black women seem to find themselves as one of the top leading entrepreneurs in today's society. Atlanta has become a mecca of Black entrepreneurship. There is literally, um, there is so many, so much potential and opportunities available to us now. Even when I look at my journey and, you know, as a Black entrepreneur in Atlanta, there are so many organizations, businesses, platforms that have really, you know, that can really jumpstart an individual's career, a Black individual's career from the Russell Center of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, uh, RCIE, something that was already founded on such a monumental legacy of mm-hmm. Herman J. Russell as a pioneer for Atlanta and all that he did for, you know, the Black community. And now it's this hub of resources and innovation where I can literally walk in and take an idea to a prototype, from a prototype to a product <laughs> right. and put the product yeah. on market. You know, something like that alone is so amazing. And then you have a We Buy Black who has a huge social media presence. And what they're doing is they're connecting the community to these Black-owned businesses and products and services and all that they offer. You have the Village Market who curates these events for us, by us, that are mm-hmm. continuing to you know, further advance our companies and what we're doing. So when I look at the Black entrepreneur and when I, when they ask me, okay, so how can we emulate that? How can we start it? Um, I believe that you find the void, you create what you want, um, you find your passion, whatever piques your interest, and most importantly, you take the first step. And I think now, right now, with all the resources that we have access to, it's the best time to take it. You seem so confident in its possibility, mm-hmm. and I believe you. Um, and I guess we really all have that privilege of being in Atlanta mm-hmm. yeah. where like you're not like the black person, right? And you're not amazing because you're black. You mm-hmm. did something amazing and you're black and it's a great experience to have. And I'm so lucky to grow up in that environment. Me too. But that possibility doesn't exist for like so many black youth and black people in America Me where they black. are the anomaly in every every situation. And starting something feels... I'll give you an example. We had a student from the Harvard Diversity Project um, come up to me and, and he was giving a Black um, History Month speech. Mm-hmm. And he was telling us that he didn't want to do it because he goes to an all-white school, even in, a, even in Atlanta. Well, I guess he probably lives on, you know, outskirts of Atlanta, claiming Atlanta. but mm-hmm. um, And he was saying that he didn't want to give it. He felt uncomfortable. And how can we claim that it's so possible to start movements if people don't even feel comfortable talking about our history? Well, I think one of the most important things with that is is finding why they're not comfortable with it. Right. You know? What do you if, think that is? Why we're not comfortable talking about it? Yes. I feel like that stems, like you guys could look at me and say, oh, she grew up with it in her household, you know, X, Y, Z, blah, blah. I look at not only that, but we look at our education system where we're, who we're learning about is, you know, the predominantly white figures. We're not, we're learning about the staple black historians. We're learning about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and these individuals, but even then we're, we're not being exposed to anything further. Um, I feel like they'd rather, they don't want to, they it's hard. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard one. to it's verbalize hard. because yeah. it's almost as if we've been shut off from everything we do come from. Right. If you're not constantly being taught about it, you know, then we're we're not exposed to and it. And when we you are taught, it's probably incorrect. It's mm. probably incorrect <laughs> yeah. or it's probably the, you know, certain token facts they right. want to instill in us. But we're not being exposed to it the way we should. And when we're not and we're constantly being taught their history as opposed to ours, where their history is our core curriculum and mm. our history is an elective, mm-hmm. then we're not going to be comfortable with yeah. it. We're going to be comfortable talking about Christopher Columbus mm. and, you know, all, <laughs> all that he supposedly did in the incorrect manner. 
But um, we're, we're not going to be 100% comfortable in ourselves because we're not learning about it, because we're not being exposed to it, right. because yeah. we're, t- we're being taught to code switch or conform or do all of these other things. Um, yeah, we're kind of, they kind of detach us from everything mm-hmm. we know. And that's very unfortunate. So, it's so int- so you, I'm sorry. Before you, you ask the next question, again, right, it, I have right. to say this. Because it's so interesting because we interviewed Langston Whitlock last time. Mm-hmm. where We asked kind of the same question about learning about history in school and the school system and how that feels growing up black. And what he said was, he said, we have black history. And not even without thinking about it, he said, and then we have normal history. Yeah. Right. Because how crazy is that to say norm. normal? They make it you know, and I think mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say there. And I think either way, it's kind of like this opposing thing of like two histories as though we exist on two different universes when really we're all just learning about history. Like you don't say we learn Native American history and then normal history, right? Everything kind of jumbles together except for the black experience. I just think how interesting it is that that shared between, you know, you two and you weren't even here for that conversation. Of course. I just want to ask, so being that we obviously can agree that one of the problems is the education system and is, it, it is what we learn in our, our everyday curriculum. So do you see that, are there any, any other contributing factors to, to us holding ourselves back or us not being comfortable in spaces that aren't made for us? Or is that just a solution fixing the education system? I don't think that's the only solution, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's a huge, it's a huge problem. Yeah. So if you take a child who from kindergarten to their senior year in high school is only being taught, you know, predominantly European white history, there's already going to be this foundation set that that's just the norm. That's the right thing. You know, that's what they've been taught. There's going to already be that foundation of being uncomfortable because they don't know what they come from. They're mm-hmm. not aware of themselves, their, their selves. But so you take that child and then you put them into society. You put them into an adult life and them having to operate in it, them being in the workforce, them being, you know, and they find themselves in different places where now everyone has that foundation and they don't, they just, they still, they just don't know. They, They still have to operate in these spaces where now they go to work and now people are saying, you have to do something different with your hair. You have to speak like this. You have to change your voice. You have to, you have to conform, basically. You have to mm, assimilate. Yeah. That's what they're teaching us. And I feel like when you take that foundation of being in the education system, you're put into the world that operates on that same, you know, spectrum. It's, it, there, I mean, there's so many solutions to be had. And That's so interesting because one of the things we want to talk about with you today is sacrificing authenticity for yeah. inclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most definitely. I wish you guys could see her right now. Like, she is so fabulous. Yeah. Like, the long locks Thank and the, she's just so unapologetically exactly who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And so one of our questions is, there is such a stigma about code switching and changing who you are in the name of professionalism, especially, in the workplace, cutting your hair, not getting a job, right? Looking, in the lack of a better word, too black, yeah. right? What are your thoughts on leaving some authenticity out in the name of inclusion, equity, and sometimes even success? I'll start my answer out by saying that I never aspire to sit at just any table. I'm very comfortable eating alone. Mm-hmm. And when you have that opportunity, and when I have the opportunity to just, to just do that, um, I'll never sacrifice my authenticity. I'll never feel like I have to code switch or leave anything out because I stand very firm in my truth and in my authenticity. Um, And furthermore, to answer the question, I feel like when you have a strong Black woman who is very comfortable in her skin, that alone is so powerful that you should never have to feel you like you have to code switch or Mm -hmm. conform to fit the perception of others or to be accepted. Do you not see... I know I keep asking, do you not, but I'm not like attacking you. It's just how I ask questions. Um, 
do you not see the importance of having a seat at their table? I understand it because okay. because to be to be quite honest, they have created you know the the this hierarchy where they are in charge mm-hmm. of the franchises and the and the high level businesses, and they have created a society where they find themselves who they as the ones who've created the table. And I do understand why we need to at times be at their tables. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, I understand the importance and I rally behind and advocate for the importance that we have to build our own tables. Mm-hmm. It's very necessary because if we just if we always aspire to sit at their tables, then we'll never aspire to build our own resources, to build our own platforms, to build our own tables that we can then we that we can then in turn utilize. Do you so know we talk, I'm sorry. We talk about like cities like Atlanta where there is like the mecca of, mm-hmm. of the black community. Like there's so many, so many, I don't like to say like that, but so many black tables around and so many spaces built for us. Mm-hmm. So what are some, in what ways can people go, people around the nation, even around the world, how do they make their own table? How do they set the scene for emulate, themselves? Emulate, em- emulate the blueprint to, yeah. I feel like those who have the influence and who have the resources and are equipped um, with the ability to do so, they got to do it. Yeah. I, I think that's... Can't hold back. You can't. I, when you were talking about building your own table, and even just now about resources and those who are equipped, right? Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of disagree with you. Okay. In the sense that I can't imagine many times mm-hmm. when Black people have been able to create their own table and create their own spaces without the help of the majority. Mm-hmm. Now, not saying that the majority made that happen, or that, it, like, you know, but a lot of times we need their power and influence to barge into spaces where we're not allowed to be, right? So what are your thoughts on, like, sometimes you need them? And there have been a few times when we haven't. I can understand that. I can. Um, I do understand that due to how history played out, where they are equipped with the generational wealth, they are equipped with the certain things needed, um, where they have been able to hold the power in many situations. I feel like we at times do need to depend on that and mm-hmm. do need to leverage it for the progression of ourselves and our community. Um, so I do understand that. I do, I, I do to a certain extent agree with that. I do also feel like we can't neglect to understand that we do have people in our community mm-hmm. with that power and with that influence and with those resources to still create those spaces for us. Okay. So what you guys, what you two are talking about is whether or not we break off and create our own system or do we integrate into the one that's already been created and which one is, 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 you know, going to lead to our success or our proliferation faster. I'm not saying that. What are you saying? Wait, we're, wait, wait, wait. we're agreeing on a new table needs to be created. Yeah. A new table needs because to be you yes. can't, that's then, a new system. It is though, impossible baby. to mold a thousand year old system into something that looks like black people. That's just not going to happen. But what I am saying is that I don't know how possible it is for us to do it completely but on our own. So do we? Uh, is so that do not... we? So do we have okay. to sometimes sacrifice authenticity to uh, to get them to help us build our own tables? In. Yeah. Or do we continue to have this slow progression of building our own table by ourselves? I feel like there needs to be both, and mm. and you know I, I I honestly do. I feel like we're going to have those individuals who you know, are going to break in, who are going to, we're going to have individuals who invest in, you know, the community or whatever. I know that there's going to be that, but I also know that there are going to be people in our community. There are going to be organizations and platforms in our community that are going to, 
that are going to build that table, even if it is a slow progression, they're still going to work towards that. And so I feel like there's going to be an even, you know, progression of both. You have a lifestyle brand called Black Vibe Tribe that has been blazing paths and disrupting narratives since its launch. Uh, There's a common theme in the community of Black youth, right? The idea of breaking the mold, right? Like people say you have to be this, this, and this. And that was true for a lot of our parents and grandparents. Like there is one way to be Black. We talk about Black people supporting each other and really are a community-led race, Mm -hmm. right? Very, We feel very strongly about community. Is that love unconditional? Or do you sometimes feel like you have to fit into a certain mold or see how people have to fit in a certain mold to be accepted and loved by the Black community? I understand it. I see it. Um, I believe that some people believe that the love is conditional. I do feel as if there is no trend or platform that defines what Blackness is. That there isn't. We may, you know, one thing I love about the culture, our unwritten rules and mm-hmm. inside jokes between us is there are certain things you have to season your food. You got to, black girls need to know <laughs> how to cornrow hair and we all yeah. got to know what it means when the streetlights turn on. Yeah. Like, we need to know those things. And if you don't, you're seeing little, you know, like, oh, girl, you know, you don't know that. You haven't seen that movie. You don't, you know, all of that. I feel like that's what I love about our community, our culture, though. Those are the inside jokes. Those are the unwritten rules. That's how you have games like Black Card Revoked and, you know, all (laughs) of these other little things. Um, But I I will say I do not feel as if Blackness is just this or Blackness is just that. Blackness comes in many different, you know, ways. It's in sour structure. It's in our DNA. So, um I don't feel like in this generation, it's it's just, it's conditional in the sense that we have to act, we have to be, we have to, mm-hmm. you know, you know, put this certain, you know, thing on this, you know, or I don't, I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like mm-hmm. we come in so many different. So, so with the idea of a, like you saying you're trying to, it's not so being a mold, like there's not so necessarily a mold of what mm-hmm. it means to be a black person. Tell us what does diversity in the black community look like then? Diversity in the Black youth community, to me, is um, our Black youth fighting the good fight of freedom and liberation for our people Mm. through the advancement of education and STEM, artificial intelligence, health and wellness, you know, um, really and truly just increasing the opportunities we have and supporting one another. And um, I feel like as we do that, that's how we win. And I'm in it to win it. So let's let's talk about that notion of freedom and liberation. What so what does it look like in a world where, not that you aren't successful now, but in, in 30 years, what do you want this world to look like when we have freedom and liberation? What does it look like for Black people? I believe that the freedom and liberation we have will scale across a global platform, a global. To, to be honest with you. Um, I believe that as we talked about, these, seat, uh, these seats and at the tables mm-hmm. and the tables yeah. that we've created, I want it to be where we've now leveraged it to a point where the tables that we're sitting at are the tables that were crafted by us where we look around the table and the table is representative of us, of, you know, who we want to build with. I feel like that's the future for us where we don't have to, where we're not going to have the Flint water crisis happening because someone's actually going to pay attention to that because when we look at the, you know, that problem, it's heavily affecting our demographic Mm -hmm. where I look at, you know, the school to prison pipeline and the failing school systems and how the school systems aren't necessarily pertaining to um, black youth and us thriving, I feel like that won't be, you know, an evident problem yeah. 30 years from now. You know, these are the hopes and aspirations that I have. And these are 
the um, these are the goals I'm working towards. These are the whys yeah. that you asked me earlier. Why am I pushing? Right. Because I don't want I don't want people to sell their grandmom's house for mm-hmm. because of gentrification. Yeah. Um, because they're trying to push Ooh, us out of our communities. Right. Yeah. It is. The, there, these are all such evident problems in our community. Where when you ask me what does it look like from 30 years from now, mm-hmm. I want them to be eradicated. Right. And yeah. I feel like that's why my work is so important in what I do. And when I say that we have a responsibility, it's so that the next generation doesn't have to face these problems. Yeah. They, they may have their own, their, their, their set of problems that they'll face, right. but the problems that are evident right now in our community, that's what I'm working towards eradicating. So do you think that, that we've progressed at all as a black society, like coming to this day and age, to this day? I do. I believe that when you look at the Jim Crow era, I feel like we've progressed from that. I feel yeah. like when you yeah. look at the civil rights movement, we've progressed from that. Mm-hmm. But like I said, um, we still have mass incarceration police and the failing brutality. school systems, yeah. police brutality, racial profile. We still have all of these evident problems where even though we've progressed, we still have a very long, a way very far way to go. Yeah. So I want to go back to kind of the original question. Okay. And at first I was like, yeah, I love those black jokes of being at Thanksgiving and talk about being on <laughs> yes. a cornrow yet. And, you know, <laughs> you smell like cocoa butter, you know, all those little, you know, black traditional the culture. things. Mm-hmm. Yes. The culture, absolutely. And I think we're so protective of that culture that maybe sometimes we don't see the problems of that culture, mm-hmm. right? So, like, we talked about Black Card Revolt, which is, if somebody doesn't know, a card game, right? Which is, like, you <laughs> say something that you do, and then they pull your Black Card. And I just want to ask you... Um, I got my you... Black Card Revolt playing that game. Oh, wow. Jesus okay. <laughs> do you Do you think that that is unproblematic? Mm. To say that someone could have their, like, Blackness and their identity ripped away because maybe they play water polo? Like, I don't... So when I look at it, and mm-hmm. this is just me, okay. I do believe that the culture that we joke about and, you know, the stereotypes we kind of do feed into and perpetuate, I do feel, I, I like when I got my black card revoked, I right. took it as a joke. I yeah. know I'm not any less black because of it. And I it know, is a joke, I know yeah. blackness isn't, isn't defined by whether or not I've whether or not I've watched every Friday movie or whether right. I know what a frigidaire is. I know that's not why like what defines my blackness. And but I, maybe you know that because you're so settled into who you are maybe. and your heritage and your history, right? But if you are a black person, mm-hmm. which is which is sometimes can be the majority experience where you don't learn about that, where you're not so settled in, right? And you go places and you feel threatened and like you don't belong. And then somebody tells you from your own community, from your own home, that your black card, not even outside of the game, is revoked, mm-hmm. that you're not authentically black. How is that not problematic? When you when you say it like that, then yes, I understand the problem in that because now you have a person who feels like they're not accepted by our community or they're less black or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, all of that. I understand that. Which is why I will all. Which is why I build Black Black right. Tribe in a sense. You know, yeah. I'm I'm trying to bring awareness and teach individuals what what this is. You know right. what yeah. we know what Black is, and you know ourselves. Like it's not just one thing. It's so many things, and we need to be aware of who we are and what we come from to know that these jokes aren't to be taken seriously. That you know their Black card is something that cannot be revoked. Right. That we are you know who we are and. That in itself is is us as black people. What do you believe perpetuates or pushes this notion that you have to do something to be black? That you have to check a a, a, a tick box? Is it ourselves? Is it our grandma? Is it is it you know the other other races? What do you think perpetuates this notion that you have to fit a certain mold to be black, even though you don't necessarily? Work? 
I believe it's the stereotypes we feed into. Um, I believe that, you know, even if I look at my own ex- my own experience, if we, whether it just be the jokes or whatever it may be, I just feel like it stems from commonalities and mm-hmm. we turn those commonalities into stereotypes. Right. So if we've all seen the color purple and we find that one black person who may have not seen the color purple, then all of a be, sudden it becomes it, a, all of a sudden it becomes it becomes an you know a non-black thing. It becomes a stereotype that we feed into. And then that in in itself perpetuates a stereotype, perpetuates the joke. So I feel like um, that may be what it stems from. Yeah, I would say. So, but, okay, I'll give you an example. Because I think in a certain way, it comes from ourselves. Because there's this person at my school, and it's not me, I guarantee you. So he... He dresses. <laughs> he said it's not me. I guarantee, so, I mean, I guarantee this. <laughs> so he's he's in class. He's always answering questions. He's always the one reading books. He's always he's never like a, he's not. We don't. He doesn't not as viewed as cultured. And one thing he's always say is you're a white boy. You talk like a white boy. You sound like a white boy. And so what do you think? Like, what up? This is Torrey, host of the Hard to Earn podcast. And if you're a fan of music reviews, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Hard to Earn. When my partner Bonesu Thompson and I review your favorite new albums and classic albums on pivotal anniversaries, you know, 10, 15, 20, etc. We review track by track, rating from one to that elusive perfect 10. It's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. Whose fault is that? Is it his fault for not being black enough or is it the, the people in my school's fault for not supporting him or welcoming him? I think it's intelligence belongs to white people is mm. an idea that we that's, have. That's what I was going to speak on. I think that stems from history in itself where right. we can't Back be history, educated. Yeah. We can't be intelligent. We can't speak well because that was always something that was saved for white people. Mm. They knew how to read. They knew how to speak. And um, when we adopted those or we started to read or we started <laughs> to learn, then we were becoming more white. Mm. And I feel like all, so all of that now, all of the, you, you're talking white or you're speaking white or you're just because we're intelligent, just because we speak well, that doesn't stem from me. That doesn't stem from them. It stems from this, this you know, history that's been ingrained in us. Right. And so that's what it stems from. What a what reversal of time, right? Yeah. Because like people believe that intelligence belonged to white people mm-hmm. and that the comments English belong to white people. And then that's how we created HBCUs, right? Because black people can learn too. And they can be taught by black professors that are just as intelligent as white just professors. As and now all of a sudden, in the 21st century, we see this thing where black students, black seniors are like, well, I, I'm not going to HBCU. Yeah. You know, they're, they're poor and like, they're not, they don't have the higher ACT scores or the GPAs. When in actuality, Howard's, Spelman's one of the top, you know, mm-hmm. colleges in, in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, what, are you seeing that reversal of time or is it just progression that's disguised as regression? I don't think, I don't think it's reversal of time, but I also like, at the same time, so like I've said, I feel like we've progressed, but there are many right. things that we we still have. HBCUs lost their. I'm trying to make the question a little. Yeah, yeah. Have HBCUs lost their value? Like, mm. is it a progression to be like, okay, now we can go to those white schools that we belong there now? Like, now we have the scores and the the doors are opening and yada yada yada. Is that progression or is it progression that we don't want to go to HBCUs anymore? To be honest, I feel like there is a certain sense of regression around it. But at the same time, again, I think that's us feeding into the stereotypes that a PWI will be better just right. because it has it has more resources, it has more this, it has more that. And so instead of looking at, because because to us, to a certain extent, 
they are equipped with, you know, some some more resources or some more of this or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like we need to look at the problems, why that is. So are the right investments being made into these HBCUs where they they are they do match the level of a right. PWI? I feel like that's a problem we need to address, something we need to look into. And I feel, but I do feel like there's this certain stereotype of I'm not going to go to an HBCU because they don't have any money. Like you know the things we right. were talking yeah. about. And do I feel like us feeding into those stereotypes and believing it just because that's what's being said or that's just you know what we're feeding into? I do think that's regression into into a, to a certain extent. Yeah, and people do. don't really realize that although they may not be you know have the best facilities or the mm-hmm. most advanced, we can't get those things if you don't go there and then have a successful career right. afterwards. So if you keep avoiding it from the beginning, like how of do you course. expect it to ever ever succeed and ever grow? If you don't face the problem, if you don't face the problem right. from the beginning. Um, I have a question. This is kind of like a little off topic, but I'm really interested <laughs> to mm-hmm. know. Do you see yourself as militant? because you know what I think about I think they called Malcolm X militant and it's not because he was necessarily anti-white but because he was pro-black will I say I'm pro-black yes Mm -hmm. I am pro-black and that doesn't mean I'm anti-white that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean I'm militant I just have a strong love for my people because I know we we're just we're just excellent we're just like superior and just so would you say that the Black Panther Party was not militant I don't think they were militant Mm -hmm. I think I think they were willing to stand by the by by any means necessary that because the thing about it is when we okay by any means necessary okay. um, so means. We, the Black means. Panther Party believed in protection of their people self defense if you attempt to harm us if you attempt to discriminate us on a deeper level by by harming us they were going to protect themselves do I believe self protection is militant if we then get into that discussion I don't think it is I feel like self protection is self protection. Um, people think of the Black Panther Party and they, they they automatically think militant and they were this and they were that. But on the flip side of that, they were doing so much in the community on a grassroots movement side of things that were progressing us, that were very helpful, that were very, you know, that, that we needed to progress ourselves. Um, but because people saw us toting around guns, they just automatically think, oh, they're so militant and they're going right. to harm us. Yeah. No. Um, even Malcolm X, even these individuals, they never said, we're going to just go out and kill people or do this or do that. They believed in protecting themselves, their people, their women, their children, and their community. And I don't see that as a militant. Can you be completely, authentically pro-Black by any means necessary? I will do anything to uplift and raise the Black community, right? Mm -hmm. And not be even at the slightest bit a little anti-white. No, I don't think so. Mm. To be pro... So to to fight for your people, to, you know, connect, love, uplift, and build them. If I build up the Black community, and I feel like this is where, you know, white people maybe become, feel so threatened, is that if I build up the community, I'm not tearing yours down. Mm -hmm. If I'm saying Black Lives Matter, I'm not saying your life doesn't. And I feel like that's where the confusion, there's confusion in their community. So then why did Black people hate All Lives Matter? Because it, I, I believe that black people hated All Lives Matter because you were discounting our movement. Mm-hmm. You weren't saying All Lives Matter until we said Black Lives Do. And mm-hmm. that's when the issue, that's when the, it became a, a prominent issue. Because when we said Black Lives Matter, then you had to combat that. So what's your message? Because we talk about how they may feel threatened by, by the black, uh, black community's growth, by their, black, by, the, by their proliferation and their success as a whole. What is your message 
I know you said when building up your community does not mean tearing down theirs. So what do you say to them in sort of dispel any sort of those, any sort of those stereotypes? I say to them what I said to you. Yeah, <laughs> when I, I build up my community, I'm not tearing yours down. Mm-hmm. There right. is no threat we are posing to you. Um, of course, I believe it's inevitable to, for them to feel threatened by it because if you look at history, they've always had the quote-unquote upper hand. Yeah. So there's always going to be those who feel threatened by it. But to us, because I do focus in on my community, as I say, we must continue to build. We mm-hmm. must continue to connect with one another, to uplift one another, to love. I, we must continue to instill these principles and values in, within ourselves and with our community. And if they feel threatened by it, so be it. So some um, people... Mm-hmm. I won't specify what I mean by that. Have said that they rape, beat, um, steal um, little black girls because they know no one will care. Um, so do you feel an obligation to not only maybe protect and serve the black community, but also to inform the white community as well on some of the problematics or the things that they instill within us, not even just what the black community instills within this, the, their own youth. Can you further expound on that as far as what they instill in their youth then? No, no, I mean, like, do you feel an obligation to give some of your attention to the white community to inform them and help them not further perpetuate the things that we've talked about that the black community perpetuates within ourselves? Because there's a duality there, right? Like, the black community and the white community both harm the minds of black youth, of right? Course. You've talked yeah. about the black community and how you help there, mm-hmm. but in what ways are you accessing and including the white community in that progress? Do I believe their community should be informed? Of course. Okay. But at the same time, our community is not fully informed themselves. Absolutely. So why would I then switch gears to try to do all that I can to inform their community if there is, there is still a certain level of ignorance or like, people who just aren't aware in our community. Mm-hmm. I'm doing everything to exhaust my resources to make sure that that we're not perpetuating these stereotypes to be true, that we're doing all that we can to raise our awareness and our intelligence on these matters. So I'm focusing in on us. Do I feel like they should be aware? Of course I do. And I do believe that there are individuals who bring awareness to them and that, you know, part of the job is to bring awareness to them. But I feel like I need to focus in on my community because there's still so much work to be done in it. So I, w- I, w- I want to ask you, because within the Black community, there are, there are obviously factors, right? There's those who are really driven and there's those who are not so much as motivated. So w- the question is, what do we do with the people who when, when people like you come along and they try to, try to motivate them, you try to give them a message, but they just don't, it doesn't click. They don't get it. So what do you, what do, you do? What do we do with those people? To those, to those people, because what automatically pops into my head when the question is asked me is I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make a drink. Yeah, right? So I can use all my resources. I can use all the information I have, and I can try my best to educate them, to inform them, to do everything I can for them. With every great leader, they will try to use their influence to influence the masses, to speak to the people they can speak to, to inform them. But if, they, if there's simply so much resistance to be had, then you move then you move on to the next individual the who next will individual. take that information who will take what you're instilling in them and will utilize it to help further the movement to help further the progression interesting um i'm a black woman i don't know if uh, you can't see me but so i'm going to tell the you. audience yes. <laughs> um, and trinity's a black uh, well i'm going to say woman yeah mm-hmm. pretty close um so i wanted to ask your opinion on massage noir so there's a there's Stephen Stephen Clark. 
he was killed in a police brutality incident. Yep. Right? We mm-hmm. know about this. Then some tweets came out where he said he didn't want nothing black but an Xbox. And talking bad about dark-skinned women and how he didn't want to be with a black woman, calling them the B word, and just really denouncing black women. And so there was this um, re- really, like, com- complicated ideas black women had to think about of, like, am I going to be black today or am I going to be a woman today? Like, and do I continue to be a platform and a bridge to the black community and their access and equity and fight for justice? Or am I going to be like, hey, I'm not about to act like he was an angel when he wasn't. So how do you, do you feel that you can be both, (laughs) that you can be both a woman and black? Or do you feel that you have to choose? I don't feel like you have to choose. Mm. When addressing a situation like that, mm. you understand both sides of it. You feel this disappointment in what was said and what came out. Um, you wonder if there's truth to it. If there is, you, you become deeply disappointed by it as a woman, even as a black woman. Those, those don't differ. Um, however, is it any less sad about his situation or a black man dying at the hands of a, a police and more police brutality occurring? No. Um, he simply... Because when I look at it, I just I just feel mm-hmm. like there was a certain level of ignorance there. He wasn't educated. He wasn't taught that mm-hmm. black is beautiful and this, that, and the third. Like, you know, what I was in, like, what was instilled in me was instilled in others. He, he just may have not had that foundation. To me, it's not any, it's, it's still, I, I still don't look at that situation and, and get any less sad because of it. Because that's, it. to be honest, that's just another black life loss. But do you see you have a greater responsibility that being that you are black and a woman? Do I feel like a I have greater a, tax to carry or a greater a greater group of people to represent? I do because I feel like there's a certain there's a certain I feel like there are certain problems that face us that mm, may uniquely. that may not face everybody. Yeah. You look at something such as sex trafficking or trafficking at black girls and how many the the, the mass amount of black girls who've gone missing mm. and no one will understand that like a black woman or a black girl will understand that. And so we must bring, I, I must bring awareness to that. It's almost as if I, I feel like I do have the great responsibility to, um, to speak on issues like that. I believe everyone should bring awareness to it. But of course, there's a responsibility where if it's facing my demographic, both black and woman at the same time, so I must speak on it. So I must use my platform and I, and I will. So to broaden this, right? You know, we talk about a, a double consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Usually when it was first written, it was about being black and American. And um, I've heard it said that some black women experience a triple consciousness, right? You're black and then you are American, right? Which comes to this own struggles and history of enslavement. And then you are a woman. When you weren't included in the feminist movement, you'd make a woman this movement, which had to be like this black woman a thing. triple so minority like, status. Right? <laughs> like, it's crazy. It right? is. Do you feel that you have to balance that or that it comes easily because it's just who you are? Again, from a very young age. <laughs> yeah. Just just growing up, um, being a black American woman, African American woman, um, I was surrounded by strong African American mm-hmm. women who carried it so well, who carried it effortless, effortlessly almost. They all faced the struggle. Right. But it's just how they were able to maneuver it. Um you know, just just in the little things or even on a, on a greater scale, it was just always something very inspiring that I noticed. And even now being an African-American woman, I, I, I understand the struggles we face and I understand the prominent issues we face on all three levels of being Black, 
of being American, of being a woman, I do understand and, and, and view those problems and see them. And I do understand I must like using my platform. I'm going to do what I can to bring awareness to issues on all scales of them. Yeah, definitely so. using all the resources that you have available and doing exerting your maximum effort to to institute change in the community is very important. But I just wanted to ask, you know, one final question. What message do you want to give to up and coming black entrepreneurs, business seekers and, and budding leaders? What What do you say to them? So I'll revisit something that I said earlier, which was to take the first step, first step. to find the passion, to find whatever piques your interest, to find the void that you want to fill, to research, to do all that you can. Um, but most importantly, to take the first step. If you don't take this first step, mm-hmm. you can't continue the marathon. Um, thank you so much, Trinity. You're so eloquent. Thank you. And you really do embody the biggest dreams, the wildest dreams of our ancestors. And we thank you so much for being here during Black Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find me at Miss Trinity Simone, M-S-T-R-I-N-I-T-Y-S-I-M-O-N-E on Instagram. And then you can find my business, Black Vibe Tribe, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then, of course, you can always go to our website, www.blackvibetribe.com. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I've, I've, had count, I've met countless people, a lot of conversations, but I've learned more in this last what, hour and a half yeah. than I've learned <laughs> in quite a while. And it's for that I'd like to say thank you. I really commend you for the work you're doing at such a young age. And it really shows like the potential for, for everybody, you know, what you can do as long as you put your mind through it and take that I've, first step, like you mentioned. And so we want to thank you for joining us today. And um Hope you guys enjoy Black Future Month. We enjoyed doing this. We enjoyed meeting you guys. (laughs) Of course. Thank Thank you. you. What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Shonda, and I am here from the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast. If you're a fan of psychology and mental health, be sure to check out and subscribe to the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast, a show that covers and talks about buzzing topics in pop culture, mental health in the black community, and faith-based topics. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.